Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk as we begin the final trading week of the summer. It's Monday the 28th of August. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And you can find us on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you for downloading the show and making the program one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. In today's business and finance headlines, U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has warned that inflation remains too high and said the central bank will continue to raise interest rates if appropriate. In a highly anticipated speech on Friday, Mr. Powell said the Fed was ready to maintain a restrictive policy to bring inflation down to its 2% target, but he tempered that message with a pledge to proceed carefully. Profits at China's industrial firms extended this year's slump to a seventh month as weak demand squeezed companies' earnings. Profits earned by China's industrial companies fell by 15.5% from a year earlier in the first seven months of 2023. Profits were down 8.3% in June, according to the National Bureau of Statistics. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo started Sunday a four-day visit to Beijing and Shanghai. Ms. Raimondo is expected to raise concerns about Beijing's economic data and explain rationale behind investment curbs during her four-day visit. She's also expected to raise issues including raids on American consultancy firms and market access for American companies. China is expected to demand relaxation of U.S. export controls as part of its broad concerns over ongoing containment, containment efforts. China's securities regulators met with some of the world's biggest asset managers in the latest attempt to shore up confidence after a record stretch of outflows by foreign funds. Fang Xinghai, a vice chairman of the China Securities Regulatory Commission, hosted the meeting in Hong Kong, which included Fidelity and Goldman Sachs, among others. And yesterday, China's Ministry of Finance said the government will cut stamp duty on securities trading by 50% to boost the capital markets and lift investor confidence. The move will become effective from today, August the 28th. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. Providing a view from mainland China will be Brock Silvers, CIO at Kyan Capital. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Major U.S. indices closed a choppy session higher on Friday as traders weighed the remarks from Fed Chair Jerome Powell at the Jackson Hole Summit. The Dow closed up 247 points, or 0.7%, at 34,347 after being up more than 300 points at the session highs. The S&P 500 gained 0.7% to close at 4,406. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite advanced 0.9% to 13,591. Both indices snapped a three-day, three-week losing streak, with the S&P 500 0.8% higher and the Nasdaq rising 2.3% over the five sessions. However, the Dow logged a second straight week of losses, falling 0.4%. The sell-off in U.S. government bonds, which took yields on long-term debt to a 16-year high at the start of last week, continued Friday. The yield on the two-year U.S. Treasury rose six basis points to 5.08%. That's the highest level since July the 6th. 
The yield on the benchmark 10-year note was steady at 4.23%, remaining slightly below the 15-year high of 4.34% touched on August the 21st. The US dollar index rose 0.2% to above 104 on Friday, reaching its highest levels in 11 weeks and advancing for the sixth straight week. Among the G10 currencies, the Japanese yen hit a nine-month low, the Australian and New Zealand dollar both slumped to fresh nine-month lows, and the Canadian dollar fell to a three-month low as investors flocked to the dollar following Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell's announcement of the US central bank's readiness to employ additional rate hikes in response to inflation. The Chinese yuan was supported by reports of mainland state banks soaking up offshore yuan liquidity and squeezing one-month forward prices as a result. Onshore yuan was 0.1% lower at 7.2890 renminbi. Hong Kong stocks snapped a three-day rebound as earnings results from some industry bellwethers heightened concerns about their business outlook. The Hang Seng Index fell 256 points, or 1.4%, to 17,956, trimming the weekly gain to 0.9%. And last Monday, the city's benchmark index hit a nine-month low. The tech index slumped 2.4% Friday, reducing its gains to 1.3% over the five trading days. The Shanghai Composite Index retreated 0.6% to an eight-month low of 3,064. For the week, it slid 1.6%. And futures markets projecting a small decline for the Hang Seng at the open of about 35 points. That's 0.2%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Monday morning guests. We have with us Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us this Monday morning, John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investments. Morning to you, John. Yes, hello. Good morning, Peter. U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has warned that inflation remains too high and said the central bank will continue to raise interest rates if appropriate, raising the prospect of further interest rate increases in the world's largest economy should price pressures persist. In a highly anticipated speech on Friday, Friday, Mr. Powell said the Fed was ready to maintain a restrictive policy to bring inflation down to its 2% target. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high, Mr. Powell said at the Fed's annual economic symposium in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, Alex and John, has this changed your view at all, having heard Jerome Powell on Friday about the future path of interest rate hikes? I think uh, it's not changed much. I think this is expected. Uh, he would still be a little bit hawkish, but uh, would be prudent to be data dependent. So I think uh, this is uh, in line with the market expectations. So that's why the market actually did not react too much. It's just uh, and the choppy stage uh, sections are a little bit higher. But I think uh, the problem is uh, still in the bond market. Uh, we are seeing the um, weakness in the the long end, uh, and so the long term rate actually um, is a. Uh, quite high right now. I think uh, that is uh, dampening the, 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 the whole market. I think uh, that would eventually affect the market. Mm. The, on, the, on the one hand, he was saying that, you know, there's distortions in the economy and, uh, and the, the Fed rate increases um, are sort of winding, to working together to bring down the inf- uh, inflation. But on the other hand, he says the process still has a long way to go. So it sounds like he's sort of hedging his bets, doesn't it? Yeah, I think uh, people would expect uh, the the weight to stay high for a little bit longer. 
mm. unless we are seeing a uh, retreat in, uh, in, in, in inflation rates. So I think uh, this is sort of expected. So I think uh, people are going for companies which probably would have a healthier balance sheet and also a um, more strong uh, hold in their respective industries. So that's why I think uh, people probably would be just uh, buying a corner of the market. It's not uh, buying the whole market. So mm -hmm. the whole market actually is not too bullish. But I think uh, probably the market will be supported by a few counters. So uh, we are probably we see the, the equity market seems a little bit resilient, but I don't think uh, the whole market is bullish. Has the markets, I mean, uh, maybe the main takeaway from what Jerome Powell said is that when we do get a pause, it's going to be quite a long one. Oh yeah, probably yeah. Because um, the, the the bond market actually is uh, is already reacting. Uh, we are seeing the bond yields deepen, and and then the risk premium I think will remain there. <coughs> so the the weight probably will stay longer, and probably will affect the economy uh, gradually. I think. John, what's what's your takeaways from what he yeah, said? I think there were two uh, <coughs> two interesting things from the Jackson Hole uh, session. Um, Firstly, the debate that's breaking out on where where is the the neutral, the neutral rate of interest, and uh, you know, people saying it's uh, well, Powell didn't commit himself um, uh, at all, but that's what that's what they're looking for, um, and whether some economists are arguing that it's structurally higher now um, because of the, the various changes um, post COVID and and what happened. Um, is Powell saying that we're above now, well above that neutral rate? No, he's not. He's, he's saying, um, I don't know where it is, but um, um, if necessary, you know, until we find it, as it were, I'm going to keep keep policy tight, tight, tight. Um, yeah, I think um, it's a bit of a puzzle why inflation hasn't come down further. Um, you know, and. People calling for a recession are now are now backing off, but um, you know we could still have a sudden um, a sudden falling away. I think of, uh, for example, the tight uh, the, the tight labour market in the U.S. Um, uh, and and elsewhere. I mean, people have been uh, very surprised by the resilience of con consumer spending, uh, not only in the U.S. but also some European countries, notably U.K. Um, despite the fact everyone is uh, apparently running out of money. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but so. it, it is a bit worrying, isn't it, that, <clears throat> that Jerome Powell's sort of saying we don't really know where the neutral rate is, we mm. don't really know how restrictive we're being, but we yeah. might carry on raising rates until we sort of find out. Yeah, yeah no, I think it's, well, he's not saying exactly that, that they're going to keep raising rates until they find the, new, the neutral rate. He's uh, reaffirmed the target for inflation will mm. be 2%. Um, some people argue that's arbitrary, but um, you know it, it, over, it stood the test of time mm. over several decades, I think. So, so um, there's no reason to depart from that. And it's not the um, Fed's job, anyway, is it, to set what the uh, what the target should be? <coughs> Presumably, that's the Congress's job to do that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the history of it. Apparently, you know, it, it was um, it was brought up by. Um, I think it was originally started in New Zealand or something. We're talking mm. about 20, 30 years ago, and then other central banks said, "Oh, well, yeah, that's that's a good good idea, good level." So I, th I, th I think it's um, yeah, no, I think it's in the central bank's um, remit. Uh, not the case in in, uh, in other jurisdictions. In in uh, UK, for example, that's that's uh, I think the the letter that the 
Bank of England governor gets from the Chancellor every, every year sort of sets mm. the targets for th mm. things like that. Mm. Um, Christine Lagarde was sort of <coughs> suggesting that the reason why inflation hasn't come down is that there's been structural changes now in the economy, partly as a result of COVID, and that's keeping these inflationary pressures um, higher than normal. And it's also very much complicating what the role of, of, of monetary uh, policy is, because a lot of these factors are, are sort of out of the central bank's control, aren't they? Yeah, we've got some new factors, uh, not least uh, productivity. But... Um, Yes, uh, Europe has a different set of problems, obviously, with en energy dependency and so on. And that's, that's why, um, you know, the U.S. is in a much stronger position. And that's why it's surprising that U.S. inflation hasn't come down uh, more. But maybe that's, um, maybe I'm contradicting myself, but that's because of the resilience of, of, the, of the U.S. economy mm -hmm. compared with... Um, and uh, Europe and Germany in particular are, are far more exposed to... Um, you know, the, the downturn in, in trade with China. Alex, well, do, do you think the markets are going to start turning to the question of when interest rates are going to be cut? Once it starts looking like the Fed is pausing, is that going to be the next thing that the bond markets are, are going to be looking at? Well, I think uh, uh, probably one or piece of uh, bad data may change a little, uh, everything. But uh, still, I think uh, the, the, the US economy is still too resilient. And so we are not seeing that piece of a bad data soon. So um, we are seeing inflation to cool down, but not too, but not enough. And U.S. economy is still quite resilient. So probably I think uh, the market would still be um, hoping for a pause instead of a of a cut. Uh, probably they probably they, they, the new expectation is that we would have this uh, high rate to stay longer. That's why we are seeing this deepening of the yield curve and the weakness in the long term, uh, long term, long, long end right now. So inflation right now in the US is at 3%. For the Fed to start cutting, what has got to happen? Has it got to actually get to 2% first before we start seeing cuts? Or has it got to look like that inflation is starting to come down more in a sort of sustainable way? I think uh, it probably would be higher than 2%, but uh, if the job markets uh, uh, suddenly turn bad, I think uh, they probably would do something. So uh, it's, uh, the inflation probably may be trending down and then with a uh, downward turn in this job market, probably they will start to cut rate. Mm. John, what, what do you think it's going to take then to get the Fed to cut, w to start cutting rates? Um, well, I'm not sure they, they really intend to uh, cut rates uh, materially for you know, at least uh, at least another year in, in, in as my long as view. That. But um, right. yeah, it would take something pretty pretty extreme. Um, I think some some new form of crisis, a kind of black swan event or something like that, to start them actually cutting. Um, but the pause, um, you know, that's that's a different matter and a, and a bit of weakness in the in the job, um, the job uh, numbers and so on would would probably be enough to ensure that the pause. Um, but I don't think they, they certainly don't want to ret return to the old sort of you know rapid cutting cycle and then tightening again mm -hmm. that sort of um, you know uh, yo-yo type of effect. Alex, you mentioned the markets <laughs> earlier. Do do you think now? 
um, investors are starting to reassess because as well as bond yields being at 16-year highs, the real yield on inflation-protected bonds is above 2% now as well. So that's sort of like the real borrowing costs, if you like, of, of companies, isn't it? So are we going to start seeing um, a, a reaction in the way in which stocks uh, start to move? Uh, I think uh, the, the stock market probably will be choppy. Uh, 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 so it is more resilient than I think last week. Uh, we, I, I have pointed out the, the will you problems, but uh, the market actually uh, was uh, very resilient and we did not see much uh, uh, corrections uh, extending uh, last week. But I think uh, if you look at the Russell 2000, actually this is quite weak. And then, uh, and then the Nvidia results uh, does not uh, boost much in semiconductor stocks. Mm. So uh, that is a weak, the size of weakening momentum. So that that was significant, wasn't it? Nvidia, despite those stellar um, results, yeah. it's it's off ten percent from its high um, since those since those results were announced. Yeah. Is this a sign that maybe people are now starting to call on technology mm. stocks and, and AI stocks? Yeah, I think uh, the AI fever probably will take a pause. And people are looking elsewhere right now. They are probably putting the money into those um, leaders in other industries. Mm. For example, uh, Mastercard and Visa actually they are they are very strong right now. So um, probably people are looking at the AI film from other angle. Uh, they probably are questioning the uh, business model uh, of uh, the um, of companies like OpenAI, and also I think they probably think semiconductor is overextended. Uh, so they are looking at uh, those uh, strong leaders, which may benefit from the AI developments, and they have an established business model to 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 earn money. So I think uh, probably we would see uh, those uh, giants in their respective industries to 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 hold on and, and probably gain further. But uh, not everything, and probably hardware probably may be, may already see the top. So uh, we probably may see a change in taste in the market. Okay, John. What are your thoughts? I mean, is the is yeah. the tech uh, boom running out of steam as uh, as interest rates go up? Um, I think it's um, you know inevitably we're getting a, a, a correction right now after a, a period of, of near near euphoria. I don't think in the long term. Well, what's the long term? Uh, the um, you know a, a few months maybe a correction. A lot of certainly we're seeing a lot of uh, a rotation into different names as Alex has. Uh, as pointed out, but um, overall we're in a period of consolidation for, well, the, we're talking the U.S. stock market. But I suppose when you look at um, yields, two-year yields mm. above 5%, the yield on Treasury-protected bonds, uh, the mm. real yield over 2%, mm. there's a choice now, isn't there? Because, you know, bonds are looking very competitive compared to compared to stocks. Yes, well, cash is, of course, the most competitive uh, of, of all, um, yes, that's right. I mean, that's that, to me, you know, in the in the in the medium term, at least, this is the benefit of having a more, you know, a proper monetary policy or a real rate of interest on on cash. Even um, as for bonds, I think they may have to uh, the yields will have to will have to back up further. I think um, we will see, um, you know. Because of the partly because of the supply, the, there's a supply issue, uh, and people even talking about whether you know China is going to start selling down its inventory of U.S. Treasuries. Um, probably not, uh, not to a great extent, but that there's and Japan also. Um, there's sort of um, 
some suggestions. The, the, so supply is coming out not only from government borrowing, but but also from obviously potentially coming out, um, unless the the yields. So the yields are likely to back up to be you know. So we have at least a flat yield curve. Mm. At what point then does this rise in bond yields start to to challenge valuations? Because if you look at the valuations of of, of U.S. stocks historically, they trade just below sixteen. They're trading right now close to sort of nineteen. At the same time, yields are moving higher and higher. Does at some point do these valuations have to readjust to take into account that? Yes, or, or earnings have to have to grow. So it's um, it's like a race against time, if you like, mm. um, to to you know if the, if the, if the corporate profits continue to, to rise, um, I suspect we may we may see um, we may see a slowdown in certain areas. Um, I even saw I saw a profit warning from a, a medical instrument manufacturer, Accenture, it's called. Uh, not exactly profit warning, but just saying that the. the they're seeing a, a slowdown in demand for their their biggest market is China mm. for a medical instrument. And they're saying that they, you know they're getting lower orders and lower sales in in, in China. So their rate of um, you know profit growth will will obviously slow. Alex, what, what do you think? Do you think these rising yields are, are people going to have to start readjusting the valuations of, of U.S. stocks? I think they have already doing that. Uh, so that's why I say uh, the Russell 2000 actually is, uh, is much weaker than, than, than in other indices. Mm-hmm. So uh, small caps actually um, are more vulnerable because uh, they probably um, are more, um, have, have less advantages in, in the new AI-lead world. So I think, uh, first of all, they probably are adjusting to those companies which are more healthier in the financial positions and more healthier in the leading positions in the industries. Mm-hmm. So that's why the small caps actually already are seeing outflows. And then uh, people probably would also um, readjust the expectations or, or, or they would not be willing to pay too much on growth. So that's why we are not seeing too much rebound in the Nasdaq or, or those are big techs uh, last week, even with the uh, NVIDIA results. So um, we are seeing uh, rotation into those uh, safer names. So uh, overall, I think the the market probably would still be gyrate, but uh, it would not be as strong as uh, the um, indices suggest. I think because right. uh, the median indices is a bit distorted by uh, some big names. So we probably may see uh, some taste in some renews uh, renew interest in in traditional names. Well, let's turn our attention to the local markets here. The big news yesterday, Alex, China's Ministry of Finance Mm. says the government's going to cut stamp duty on securities trading by 50% to boost the capital markets and lift investor confidence. And the move's going to become effective from today. Um, Alex, do you think it's going to work? It's only helped to improve the liquidity and short-term interest. Of course, a better liquidity actually was uh, bringing higher valuation because you lower the risk of trading. But in China, I think the most um, important issue for short-term trading is that they do not allow day trading. Mm. So it is still quite risky. So mm. a 0.05% cuts in stamp duty actually is not how much. Mm. But I think this uh, have uh, some psychological support for the market because they show the gesture of the authority. So And, and we are so depressed, so probably we would have uh, some rebound. But if you look at the rebound, right now people are expecting probably would be uh, 2-3% not too much uh, mm. compared with the sell-off. Because fundamentally, um, uh, the whole market actually is bad. 
uh, you have a bad manufacturing company results, and also uh, the property market probably will not recover. So uh, we probably may have a short-term rebound, but uh, I don't think it would help in the long term because um, uh, this is just uh, helping the uh, short-term speculators. So this is more symbolic than anything else, but at least, as you say, it does send out a sort of a message of intent, doesn't it, that the, the authorities are concerned about the markets. Yeah, but uh, it's also so, so that they, are, they, are not, not, they do not have too much tools. Actually, <laughs> so so apart from this, actually, we are not seeing uh, really helpful measures uh, coming out. Yeah. I mean, John, we've seen quite a lot uh, of talk, haven't we? They've been urging financial institutions to buy equities. They're, they're trying to encourage companies to boost buybacks. They've asked mutual funds to stop selling. Now yeah. this uh, stamp duty cut, a sort of flurry of measures in recent days. The problem yeah. is none of it seems to have worked. No, I think we're much... Uh you know, it's 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 welcome that they're making some effort. I, I don't think the securities regulator has a lot of um, a lot of influence over the the overall situation. I mean, everything revolves around this uh, this debt crisis, and uh, we've got to see how that unfolds, um, or how 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 that is dealt with. Uh, and it's not a short-term project; it's you know, multi-year project to deleverage. Um, not only the, the property companies, but also the local government financing vehicles and so and shadow banking and all the rest of it. Um, that's going to take uh, time. Uh, mm. the, the thing that foreign investors keep on saying is that they want to see some stronger policy measures from the government. I mean, it's been all talk so far, hasn't it? And that's why we've seen foreign institutions, they've sold 13 days in a row now, um, Chinese stocks yeah. just bailing out, hugely underweight um, now. But presumably until we do see some sort of policy response, this is not going to get any better. Um, yes, uh, uh, I mean, we're starting to get um, a little bit of... Um you know, a measure here and a measure there, such as the <coughs> the, the mortgage, um, you know, lifting the mortgage restrictions and so on, uh, on buying buying of properties. But um, as I say, I saw a piece um, last week. Uh, was Financial Times commenting on uh, on a report by Goldman Sachs that um, there's uh, the construction needs to uh, clear its excess. Uh, inventory, uh, which is a something something like 60 trillion RMB, um, and at a current rate of sales, that would take um, about five years. That's the current rate of sales, and the same mm -hmm. rate of sales is actually declining. Uh, and then after that, you'll be left with, um, you know, uh, a certain you know write-offs of debt uh, held against uh, against that in that inventory. Uh, mm -hmm. The big question is who's going to take the hit amongst the banking system, the shadow banks, um, are the government, uh, central government going to step in by buying bonds, uh, things like that. Do you think, Alex, foreigners are being too <clears throat> pessimistic now um, on, on the markets? I mean, if you look at uh, the performance, I mean, Chinese stocks are close to their <clears throat> lowest versus US stocks since 2001 now. I mean, is, is the risk reward after this big sell-off and after the rally in the US, is it starting to shift towards China? I think uh, uh, it depends whether you want to trade or you want to long, uh, invest long term. If you want to invest long term, then you will not consider China because the experience is too bad. Mm -hmm. uh, after 20 years, actually, you are seeing no growth at all. 
in the stock market, I mean. So um, they probably will still question the um, profitability of Chinese companies because you are in a deglobalization world and then manufacturing actually is our favor and and also uh, they have a um, uh, bubble bath in the property market. So it's very difficult to produce long-term value uh, in China market. So what they offer is a cheap valuation right now. So anytime they probably will have, will have a soft squeeze and then we probably may see a 15 to 20% rebound. We have seen that kind of move uh, several times last year, um, but uh, we do not see sustainable rally. Actually, in history, China bull market only lasts probably uh, six months to one year every time. So, so is it good for short-term trading only? But in the U.S., actually, you have a um, very long-term track record for passive investing in S&P. So I think uh, that is the difference. So um, I don't think China probably uh, would be able to, 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 to reverse that uh, expectation. So probably um, uh, if you want to trade, uh, you can make still consider. But I think uh, this time is a little bit different because um, manufacturing is, uh, is, is, is not the um, favorite business model right now already. And China has not uh, get anything new attractive. And also they probably would be restricted in the AI development in the long term because of uh, the um, uh, sanctions on chips export to them. So I think uh, the, um, the overall picture in China actually is quite bearish. This is pretty gloomy from what you're saying, because you're almost saying there's really nothing that can be done at the moment to try and make uh, Chinese equities uh, attractive to, to investors. Unless we are seeing some drastic write-off in, in, in that, I think they, they probably need to do something really huge to, to, to probably speed up the leveraging process. Uh, so probably we'll <laughs> then otherwise, I think uh, it's not easy to restart. John, what, what do you think? Yes, I've been reading uh, Ray Dalio's work on uh, on uh, debt debt crises, the history of big debt crises, and um, you know he, he he says that yes, China needs what he calls a beautiful deleveraging, um, which, uh, as I said, will take some se will take several years just because of the scale of it. Um, depending what measures the authorities take, you know you can either end up with a J Japan type outcome where it drags on for a decade or more, um, or a GFC-type outcome where in the U.S., you know, it was all over within probably less than two years uh, after the Lehman, uh, Lehman crash. So which one will be the best for China right now? Does it, do, do you agree with Alex that maybe, I mean, you know, we need a, a rapid deleveraging to get this out of the way? Uh, basically, yes. Um, but um, without going into detail, the, the, the various levers that are available to the authorities, it's up, it's up to them really to map their own course. There's no single absolute te template, um, and depending on their circumstances. But yes, there needs to be, um, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of um, balance. You have to balance uh, restructuring and, and write-offs of, of debt with stimulus mm. um, at the right time. Um, to you know, to try and reflate um, as you and achieve a sort of soft landing and then gradual recovery. You, you don't get a dramatic rebound. But there's no sign that the Chinese government is going to allow that uh, rapid deleveraging to happen. Um, well, it would happen. It might unravel by itself. You see, if they don't at a certain point in time, when when, when you get defaults and 
Um, you know, if we have an, uh, another Evergrande in the form of Country Garden or whatever, um, then, you know, there will be lots of losses in, in uh, particularly the, the smaller banks, regional banks, local banks. Um, and then you have these runs on, you know, depositors, households will start trying to withdraw their savings. Um, so they would have to actually, you know, stop them doing that, uh, stop a bank run. Mm. Bank runs. What, what about Alex? The difference in China and U.S. bond yields—they're now at the widest um, in history. Presumably, that's going to put more downward pressure on the yuan, and uh, the PBOC has already been sort of trying to push against that to to stop a rapid uh, decline in the yuan. But what's the impact there going to be? I think uh, uh, the impact actually would be positive. A weaker yuan probably would be bad. It would be good for the economy in the long term. So they probably would allow a uh, slow depreciation. So we are seeing, well, probably we would see the RMB2 depreciation uh, at a very slow pace, I think. Uh, but they would allow it. And I think uh, if depreciation is slow enough, then the impact on the economy would not be too much because people will adjust their expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would not be over leveraged in RMB related assets. I think uh, that's, that's, that, that's the long-term trend for RMB and people probably would would be adjusting their, 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 their portfolio and the financial positions uh, um, quickly enough uh, to avoid damage from the depreciation. John? Yes, I, I agree. That's what, yeah, currency depreciation combined with uh, money printing or money printing causing currency to depreciate is part of the, is one of the levers that they can use to gradually uh, reflate the economy. And um, yeah, they'll, they'll they want to obviously stop it going getting out of hand and uh, uh, and you know talk uh, talk the market up a bit from time to time so 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 uh, we don't get a, a rapid uh, deceleration but uh, acceleration. Mm. Um, but otherwise, yes, I agree with Alex. Uh, finally, let me ask you about Hong Kong then. John Lee was talking over the weekend about setting up a task force to look into ways to boost stock market liquidity. Financial Secretary Paul Chan is going to lead that group and is going to announce more details this week. Um, Alex, what would you suggest? Of course, first of all, it cuts stamp duty. <laughs> yeah, uh, right now the, um, the, the trading for day, the, 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 the fee for day trading actually is, is too much and for arbitrage actually is too much. So I think uh, that's why uh, cutting in stamp duty is, is the fastest way to, for, for boosting the turnover in Hong Kong. And, and in the long term, probably you would uh, try to uh, get more big names into Hong Kong because uh, people are not interested in small cap anymore, especially in Hong Kong, because those companies actually do not deliver results uh, and, and, and stock price return for investors in the past uh, 10 to 20 years and, and we need to have uh, more big names because our trading are very concentrated in, uh, in probably 100 stocks in Hong Kong right now only. So uh, we need to get more uh, respectable big names in Hong Kong. John, what would you um, recommend the government do? Yeah, I mean the, uh, the cost of trading in Hong Kong is, um, was about 11 basis points I think. Um, compared with um, you know, Tokyo, there's zero cost to trading, uh, except you know whatever. And it's very competitive market for for commissions. You know, to uh, institutional investors pay a few, uh, or even retail investors will pay a few basis points to to trade. And um, you know, compared with um, so the Tokyo market has been is is always quite liquid, very liquid. 
um, despite the, the, the their deflation problems. Oh. So I, you know, yeah, definitely encourage them to cut uh, cut the stamp duty or even eliminate it altogether. Oh, okay, so stamp duty mm. seems to be the uh, the answer. Is mm. the the uh, the word of the word of the week? Mm. Thank you both very much. Mm. You heard there, John Schofield, who's managing director at Tempus Investments, Alex Wong, director of Alex K Y Wong Asset Management. <laughs> I'm joined now by Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. Good morning, Brock. Good morning. Um, Chinese regulators seem to be doing everything possible at the moment to try and shore up the uh, the stock market. They're trying to encourage uh, mainland funds to stop selling. They're increasing, uh, encouraging companies to do buybacks. And then yesterday we had this announcement um, of a 50% cut uh, to stamp duty on securities trading, effective from today. Well, first of all, do you think that is going to make any difference? Is it going to work? The harangue from the government or the stamp duty? But I'm afraid it doesn't matter. My answer is the same in, e- in either case. Um, look, all of these efforts we're seeing to talk up markets are starting to look counterproductive to me. You know, at first, my impression was that authorities were kind of pushing markets while policy was being formed, which may not help the impression of markets, but it doesn't make regulators look bad. But, but that's changing. And now I think regulators, uh, authorities are just pushing misaligned ideas. You know, China's economy isn't suffering from a liquidity crisis. There's no combo of um, small rate cuts, uh, you know, triple R adjustments, mortgage tweaks that's going to revive the old model. So the problem with equity markets has nothing to do with a stamp duty. And a 50 percent cut, I think, will, after a few days, mean nothing. So, so you think you think there'll be a temporary bounce, with- a temporary bounce, maybe, but not much a- more at best. Mm-hmm. At best, we're we're seeing a raft of irrelevant actions combined with subsequent happy talk about the coming impact of those actions. And I don't think it will matter if the CSRC yammers away at Goldman and the rest of the gang. Does it at least give a signal of intent, maybe something symbolic here that at least regulators are now focused on, uh, that this huge underperformance in the market, isn't it, which has been going on not just months, it's been going on years now, particularly if you compare it to the U.S. markets? Look, I I think they're probably quite surprised at that underperformance. It wasn't expected, and they desperately need to be seen as being engaged and actively working to counteract it. But that doesn't mean that they're really doing so. Um, I I just think ex-China investors have two main concerns right now in no particular order. Number one, is, is China really investable? You know, in recent weeks, we've seen bond pricing feeds cut, due diligence illegalized, new data security laws, restriction of risk factors, the muzzling of economists, the restriction of statistics, now government pressure on institutional investors. Um, U.S. Uh, U.S. investors just have to decide if that's a market that they want to play in. Now, if China wants more foreign investment, I think it needs to be more investable. That may not happen very quickly. Now, the second issue is where's the growth? The prior model's busted. It's not coming back. Um, Mm. A third of GDP growth was from real estate, which is now functionally insolvent. In prior times, we may have managed growth with credit to LGFEs for infra projects, but those are also insolvent now. Exports could have driven growth in the old days, but but now we we see politically driven decoupling gaining momentum. So Mm. where's the growth coming? Mm. Those are the real issues, not the stamp duty. 
So then, do you think um, if you go right to the very top of the leadership in Beijing, of course, that's President Xi Jinping, does he really care how the stock market performs? I, I, I sort of, I, I wonder if despite all this talk, it's not his top priority. The, and then helping foreign investors despite all this talk is not a big priority either, because they're only, what, 3% of uh, the mainland right. markets anyway. You know, look, that's a, a bit over our pay grade, but let's take a stab at it. Um, I think ultimately someone in Xi's position has to care about how the economy is performing and, and thus how the markets are doing. But but realistically, functionally, I just don't think it's a priority. Mm. I think there are other priorities that that which he has given precedence um, and he's willing to see some dislocation and dishappiness dissatisfaction from guys like me in order to achieve those goals that he believes are more important. And, and, and that's his right. But it's also my right as an investor to not like the markets. Mm. And those goals, presumably, are national security related. That's one of the top priorities. Yeah, sure. Look, he, he can he can decide that all of those active actions we've seen in recent weeks that make investors unhappy he can decide that those are rational and warranted, and he may be right. But that doesn't change my view as an investor that if I can't do due diligence and make an investment and take a loss, that loss is on me, and uh, I may have to pay a career or monetary price for that. So it sounds like from what you're saying, it's going to take quite a radical change in policy to convince you to change your mind and, and think that you would like to start investing in Chinese equities again. It it doesn't mean that I don't like the companies or the opportunities. Again, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to own ten cent Alibaba again. Um, so it's not an investment issue. It's a larger structural issue. I don't think it would be impossible to get me on board, but I also don't think we're moving in that direction. Mm. So then it, it's not even down to valuations because, you know, Chinese equities do look pretty cheap, don't they? And certainly when you compare them to international peers. But from what you're saying, that, that isn't really going to be enough to tempt you back into the markets. That, that's right. Look, I see this argument in, partic in particularly with regard to banks right now. Lots of people say, gee, banks, banks may, be, uh, may be an opportunity for investors. Yeah, but banks are also right, the, the, the eye of the storm for the discomfort that I'm telling you many investors are feeling. Mm. So even, even if someone can quote me a raft of statistics about net asset value and sort of net margins, uh, you know, loan to book, et cetera, um, my response to that is, that's just not the point. Mm, so, you know, I mean, well, the banks are a good example, aren't they? Because we had on Friday them reporting China Construction Bank, China Merchants Bank in, uh, in, uh, reporting increases in non-performing loans, which I suppose is no surprise. Um, but it does highlight the, the problems that even on attractive valuations, there's some quite big problems on the balance sheet. Yeah, look, there sure are. I, I think Chinese banks are in for a very rough period ahead. Um, you know, real estate exposure itself is significant, but probably not enough to really crater the system. But we have to also add in the LGFV insolvency issue. The exposure there is even greater. And if you combine the two problems of real estate and LGFV, that's enough to keep bankers awake at night for certain. So I really think we, we have to ask the question of, is 
China's present model on the whole still solvent? And if it isn't, how is China going to reconfigure to achieve greater solvency? That's, I think, really the the coming question for China. Well, normally the only way to do that is a deleveraging, isn't it? Um, and either a slow, pain, a long, slow, painful deleveraging, like um, we saw in Japan in the 1990s, or a very rapid deleveraging that gets it all over maybe quickly, but cause, cause, cause some pain and damage. Neither option sounds very fun, does it? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and on top of that, we have a problem with interest rate disparity, you know, Powell is fighting for higher for longer, while the PBOC is searching for ways to somehow lower rates without really lowering them too much. So that added margin squeeze at banks comes at a time when things are already looking quite wobbly. Mm. So well, that's interesting because the yield now, the difference between the U.S. 10-year yield and the Chinese yield on the 10-year bond is at the widest on record um, now. So presumably there's going to be some impact from that, isn't there, particularly for the yuan? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Look, uh, it, it, makes, it makes trades going forward look sort of obvious. Um, now, the U.S. has its own problems, but, but that's a topic for, for another day. And what about uh, then the economy? We had some data out uh, yesterday, Chinese industrial profits, they fell for the seventh uh, month in a row, down 15.5% from a year earlier, down 8.3% uh, in June alone. Um, it doesn't look like um, the, the, the policies that the government is talking about um, are making much of a difference. No, it, look, the data is not encouraging. Um, it it makes the mini rally we had several months ago look uh, misplaced at best. Um, I don't think it, it will change the government's course because, look, China it has some problems that it's going to have to deal with economically. But it's not as if the place is just falling apart. It's not imploding at that level. There are serious problems. And I, hmm. But it's nothing that a determined government couldn't, um, couldn't ride through for a while. And I think that's, that's the plan. Why doesn't it try and do more to boost consumer spending? That's the thing it keeps talking about. It wants consumers to go out and spend, but then doesn't really do anything to, to make that happen. All, all we seem to know is that the government um, is totally against putting cash in uh, consumers' pockets, building what it thinks is a, a welfare state. President Xi Jinping has, has spoken out several times about what he calls welfareism. So if, if they're not going to do these things, what's the model going to be? What, what are they going to do instead? Well, look, China has been talking about transitioning to gra a greater consumer-driven economy since you and I were much younger men. I mean, that is not a new discussion. It's it's also just not something that's easily achieved. Mm. But you're also looking at a government that is determined to um, centralize more of the economy rather than putting more of it in the hands of consumers. That just smells like kind of, uh, you know, U.S. economics, which I'm sure is not popular within the halls of Zhongnanhai. Mm. So it, it just sort of isn't philosophically appealing. At the end of the day, the, the government just doesn't like the Western-style um, approach, does it? The consumer-driven approach to the economy. That, that's the, the nub of it. You know, that's, that's correct. And, and look, it, it's, it's not my job to, 
to say that that's a good or a bad policy. I can just react to it. But what I do know is that anyone looking for a system of communist policies generating capitalist returns is going to be disappointed. Mm. And particularly when you've got a system where it wants to have total control, that sort of goes against, doesn't it, boosting consumer spending? Because that, by definition, means you allow consumers to make choices about how and where they want to spend their money, and you give them that choice. But that's sort of totally against um, Communist Party policy at the moment, which is that the choices are made by Beijing. And it's a valid decision, but but it's not going to lead to a vibrant consumer-led economy that, you know, sort of drives innovation and raises living standards in that way. Mm. Let me just ask you about one other thing. Gina Raimondo, U.S. Commerce Secretary, has arrived in Beijing for a four-day um, visit. Can we expect much? I mean, she, in, in many ways, out of the, the senior officials that have gone to Beijing recently, Janet Yellen, Anthony Blinken, uh, John Kerry, she is the one that is almost at the heart of all the problems that confront uh, U.S. and China relations, because she's responsible for trade. She's responsible for enforcing uh, these, these sanctions on technology. So can we expect much from this visit? Well, look, I'm, I'm glad we're on this topic. It's at least something I can be optimistic about. I think the trip is mostly a Potemkin trip meant to look impressive without really doing anything. And in this on this score, I think it will be completely successful. Um, I don't think the Biden administration wants to be tough on China, but it does want to be seen as tough on China. Now, we saw this dance with the recent tech export controls. It was reported that the U.S. imposed lots of restrictions. That's not the case. Um, Yellen, a declared dove, was given the authority to restrict, which I predict will be used very sparingly, if at all. And, and that's, I think, the sort of dance we're seeing here. I don't know that Ramondo really wants to um, wants to get much done with this with this trip. The U.S. did beg for a meeting, but it also probably won't give in to Chinese demands on export controls. So I think that kind of leaves us uh, with more of a standoff, and the two sides will invariably agree to talk more, um, and, and and things will go on. But I do suspect that. Outside the Biden administration, Washington is very keen to take on China in trade and tech matters. And as soon as Joe Biden is no longer officially in office, I think that relationship is likely to be the worst. Brock, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Brock Silvers, who's Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves, on my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Alex Frew-McMillan, a freelance writer and Asian columnist for thestreet.com, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.